Good morning. Great to be here. Really good. Uh, I have to say that there were several years ago um, I thought God was through with me traveling. I thought that uh, my traveling days were over. I've said a, f- a couple of times that both to Ian and, and Richard, I have about over 80 stamps in my passport just to Great Britain. And I did that in uh, about a 20-year period. So if you figure it out, that's four times a year going over there, and that's a lot of jet lag is what it amounts to. But I've also worked in South America, in Guyana, Costa Rica, and then recently through SES, through Southern Evangelical Seminary, both Richard and I have worked with uh, uh, the outreach ministry of that seminary and been going to different countries, South Africa, uh, Italy, Greece, Macedonia. So we've gotten around and done some, some work in different churches. And this is the first time for both of us to be here in, in New Zealand and uh, finding it very nice. I think you've done better than the British. You've kind of like taken a couple of steps up, which is... And I, I have a lot of British friends. If they heard me say that, they'd probably throw something at me. But. Okay, yeah, I am married. I've been married for 44 years. I have a lovely wife. We have uh, three grown children, nine grandchildren, and four great-grandchildren. And I know I don't look old enough to have great-grandchildren, but yes, I do. My kids have uh, blessed me with those things, and you find out why they're great when you have them. Grandchildren are good, you think they're great, but then you have great-grandchildren, you think this is why they call them great, because you can play with them, give them back, don't have to take any of the responsibilities. Okay, I'm going to shoot for, how, how long do we have? We want to quit about, about 35 minutes? You know, what it, you know what it means when a preacher looks at his watch, right? Yeah, nothing, not a thing. <laughs> Just <laughs> yeah, oh good. Well, uh, let's, let's look at John chapter 1 and verse 14 and start there. As uh, my slide says there, I want to talk about the big story, what I call the big story, and, and see how God has really purposed what we sang about this morning. Great worship songs, by the way. Those are, those are spot on. They were just, they nailed it, really. I was filming them so I could take them home and give them to our worship group to say, we need to sing this stuff. In John chapter 1, verse 14, John writes this. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's just pray for a minute. Father, thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for your goodness to us, your love for us. Thank you for the purpose that you have for our life and our lives, Lord, and help us to fulfill those things. Help us to be obedient and full of faith to do that. Help me this morning, Lord, to communicate the things that are on my heart and the things that you've put here so that you might be honored and and blessed by our presence and what we share, Lord. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So John writes um, what we call a prologue in the first chapter where he describes some things about who Jesus is. He is the Word. He was with God in the beginning, and he is God. And then tells that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I just want to point out that word dwelt because that's really the, the center of what I want to talk about this morning. That word dwelt is really the word tabernacled. And that comes from an Old Testament um, structure where God instructed Moses to um, 
make this tabernacle, and he, they would sacrifice in front of it, bring the blood inside. There was all kinds of religious and ritual things that went on there, but it was known to be God's presence, especially when Israel was in the wilderness. Later on, that same structure was, was changed into a temple. I'll talk more about that in just a minute. <coughs> Sorry. So the big story... If I could give you some, some pictures of it, we're, we're going to create like a little bit of a play and see how the, the story works out. So first we have players, and those players are God, man, and angels. And then we have the plot, and the plot is the big story. The plot is what we'll talk about this morning. And then we, we see a predicament, and that predicament is, is the fall. It's sin and, and separation from God. But then we also have a promise where we find restoration, atonement, and reconciliation. And finally, we have the priesthood, because that's part of this whole picture. That's really where this story ends. It ends with, with a priesthood, Jesus being our high priest. And uh, just, just, do you know the difference between prophet and priest? Yeah? No? This is the interactive part, you see. Right? Prophet and priest. A prophet brings God to people. That's what the prophet does. The prophet speaks for God to the people. The priest takes people to God. That's the difference in general terms. So the prophet is the one who speaks the word to, to the people and basically brings God's presence to the people, brings them back into line with God. But the priest is the one who works to bring people to God. And that's, that's something that we have to get, we'll get our minds around a little bit. Okay, Here, here's my simple outline for uh, the big story. This is simple enough. I think even children can understand it. It's these three steps. God made it. You got that? You're writing it down? Yeah. God made it. We broke it. Yeah? What do you think follows? Jesus fixes it. That really is the big story right there. That is, that is Genesis to Revelation in a nutshell. God made it. We broke it. Jesus fixed it. See, that's, that's really the, the whole thing that we understand about that big story. It gets a little bit more involved with that because when we look at the players, we look at God created uh, heavens and earth, and it's God, man, and then the angelic world. And by the angelic world, we mean anything that is spiritual. So you have angels and demons involved in that, right? <clears throat> and that's the part where we see God made this. The players are simply God, humanity, and the angelic world. It's very simple right there. Um, the plot, the big story comes to us, and we begin, we begin to see what this big story is. How many of you know that the Bible does not believe with the Gospel of Matthew? Yeah? There's the interactive part again. Right? The Bible doesn't believe with, with, with the Gospel of Matthew. The New Testament does. And the Bible doesn't begin with the call of Abraham. That's not where the story starts. The story starts in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there, there are several things that we can understand about God, God creating the heavens and the earth. We understand that God spoke the universe into existence. 
there was, if we could say it this way, there was a moment when there was no time. I know it's hard to imagine that. When you use the word moment, you're inferring time. But there was an instance, if we could say that again, it's a time word, when there was no time, no space, and no matter. All, all there was was God. And God then spoke it into existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So if God made it all, who owns it? Not a trick question. Yeah, God owns it. He's the one who owns it all. This is all his. Uh, he doesn't exist for us. We exist for him. The, the, you know, there was, there was a song that my, my wife made up some years ago. It was that It's not about me. It's not about us. It's all about him. And we, that's the perspective that we have to get in life, that it's, it's not about me. You know, my life is one very small piece of a puzzle in this gigantic puzzle that stretches out all of time. And sometimes I try to think that that piece is the whole thing. But all it is is this little, little piece that fits in this puzzle. And until we get a good picture of the big story and see that where we fit into it, we struggle with that because we think that it's all about us. Right? I know no, none of you have ever said, why me, God? Right? That was the laughing part of the interaction. <laughs> okay, so the big story. So then, then we have this predi predicament. And the predicament is the fall of humanity. And it comes to us, um, we, we see God's confronting what happens. You know the story. God creates man, puts him in the garden, tells him you can eat of any tree of the garden, but don't eat that tree. Don't eat that one. That's like telling a little boy, don't come up on the stage and run across the stage. Or don't touch those things. I often wonder, why did God put it right in the middle of a garden? Why didn't he put it like in the back somewhere, hiding somewhere? Well, it's something that they had to confront and see. And of course, we know a serpent appears talking, tempts Eve. She buys it. Adam just jumps in and he does it. And then when God comes along, we find that, that Adam and Eve are hiding from the presence of God. All of a sudden, they're not looking for him, but hiding for him. And God cries out and he says, where are you, Adam? And reveals that, that they know that they have sinned. And of course, these are the verses that we, we, we can read or the verse that we can read in Genesis chapter 3 where God says, I will put, talking to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And that is the first word that God speaks about what's going to happen in the future. All the genealogies that you read in the Scripture are all about men and men coming down. But this seed is special. He says it's the seed of the woman, that this seed is going to come from a woman. And we know that there was only one person born into the human race that didn't have an earthly father, right? Jumping ahead here. But this is Jesus that he's talking about. And he says that the, the battle is going to go throughout all the ages. But when this one shows up, this seed shows up, he's going to crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel. 
So you're just going to hit the bottom part of us humanity, but you're going to have your head crushed by him. That is really the picture of the cross and the battle between God and Satan or Jesus and Satan. But until then, man is in a predicament. And the predicament is that we, we cannot get out of sin. When I got saved, I was trying to do everything to change myself. I didn't, the more I got to know me, the less I liked me. The more I saw what my life was about, what my wants and desires were, I wanted to change. And so I went on, I went on a tear, if I could say that, looking for what I could do to change me. I thought you could do drugs to change you. I thought you could do meditation to change you. I thought I could do all these other things, believe these other religions or try to practice these other religions or even try to be a moral person to change me. But I, I, I found that I couldn't change me. And I have a, a picture of what it looked like when I was trying to... That's a predicament. Yeah? That's when you're stuck in something. So the plot unfolds from here. Man is in a predicament, and we find in the first few chapters of Genesis and chapter, chapter 6, we find that God destroys the whole earth with a flood, but he saves Noah and his family, and just eight individuals are saved by that. And when they come out, what happens? They, they <clears throat> start a new life together first thing, or at least what appears that Noah gets drunk. And his son, one of his sons embarrasses him, and the others cover his nakedness. But we find out right from the beginning, what do they do? And they're doing the same thing that, that um, Adam and Eve had done in the garden. We find out that they're just as sinful because nothing's changed. Their humanity is still the same. They're, they're caught in their sin. And you find it all. The plot unfolds with the patriarchs, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham is supposed to be the father of our faith, is the father of the faith. The Jews certainly look at him that way. But what does Abraham do? He lies about his wife. He says, look, you're a beautiful woman. When, when the Egyptians see you, um, they're going to they're gonna kill me and to take you. So let's lie. Let's say that you're not my wife. You're my, you're my sister. And what happens is Pharaoh goes and takes her. That's it. He doesn't say, no, you can't do it. That's my wife. He just goes along with it. Not until God appears in a dream. So what has he done? He's already sinning. We find that Isaac does the same thing. And Jacob is a scoundrel. But they're all doing this thing where they have an altar where they sacrifice to God and God comes and talks to them. And you begin to see a picture that God is, is still reaching out to man. But whenever God chooses a man to do something, he's still a sinner and he still does the wrong things. He do, still does things that, that you realize that it doesn't depend on their actions for the promises of God to be fulfilled. That because if it depended on their actions, we never would have gotten to Jesus. But it was because of the promise, the covenant that God made with his people, that he fulfills those things. That's just a, a great picture to see about that big story. So what, what happens next Jacob goes down into, or Joseph first goes down into Egypt. Jacob follows with the tribes, and the family goes down as 70 people. And by the time they come out, some 400 years later, they're in the millions. You know, some people estimate a million and a half because they're counting how many men there were. In, but they're doing it from a Western perspective. They're thinking, 
one wife to one man and, and two and a half children to each family. Not the way it happens. Multiple wives, lots of kids. If you look at the, the way the, the Jewish, the Hebrew families lived, it was, it was a whole lot different. And when they come out of Egypt, then, then things really start to take shape because God wants to use Israel to demonstrate what a relationship with him would look like to the rest of the world. And in chapter 25 of Exodus, God begins to talk to Moses and he says this, he says, you're going to build a tabernacle and I'm going to give you the pattern of how you should build it and take care how to build it. How many of you like to read through the, the end of Exodus and Numbers and, and read what's going on there? And then when God gets real particular, he starts talking about the poles and the sockets and the rings on them and how to hang a curtain and how to make sure you do this. You know, you want to go, oh, can't wait to get out of this. But God was so particular about this, this thing that he was building. And I, I just got a very rough picture of what it looks like. But, but that was basically the structure that he looked that he built there. This part here would have been an altar, and that's where they would sacrifice animals. Matter of fact, one of the offerings was a burnt offering that every morning they would take one of the best bulls and slaughter it and put it on there, and the smoke of that bull would go up all day. And God would say that it was, uh, it was a pleasant aroma in his nose as he breathed that smoke. And at night, they would do the same thing. So all 24 hours a day, there, there, was, there was smoke coming up from this altar. And if you had sinned, God instructed you that you could go to this altar and you could bring a sin offering where your sins would be forgiven. Some people describe that tabernacle that there was actually a river of blood flowing from in front of that altar because of the animals were being sacrificed all day long. And certainly when they got to the temple part, this is what was going on. The second structure they had there was a laver. And the laver was this huge bowl that was just filled with water. And that, the priest would wash in there, but not until there was sacrifice. They would first sacrifice, get the blood, then they would wash. The first one is representative of the blood. The second one is representative of the word. And then the priest would go, and he would go into this area. This was one whole area. Ignore that line right there. That this was one area, and that's where the priest could go every day to set up the showbread to make sure that there was bread there for, for service for them. There was, an, there was a, a candelabra, if you could call it, where the, there was uh, seven, seven, lamp stand, uh, seven lights on the lampstand. Um, <clears throat> but the priest would basically live here. This is where God lived. See, this is where God dwelt. And this, there was a curtain right here, Okay. And on that curtain were four creatures that were embroidered into it. And on, on there, there was a creature that looked like a man, a creature that looked like an ox, a creature that looked like a lion, right? And a creature that looked like an eagle. Those are the four things that were there. And these were called cherubim, right? Yeah? And what did God place in front of the garden when, when he drove man out of the garden? Anybody remember? Yeah? This is the interactive part. What did, he, what, did, what did he place there? Cherubim with flaming swords to keep man from ever going back in. Because he said if, he do, if they do that, they'll eat of the tree of life and become like us. 
is what he said. So he placed there. So this is representative. Now let me just give you a picture. Let me catch you up on something. In the, in, in the creation, when God, creates, when God creates man, he doesn't create man in the garden. He places him in the garden. God forms a garden and places him in there. And that's where God goes to meet with him. Eden is symbolic of the place where God lives because out of Eden flows this river to water the garden. Because out of, out of the place where God lives comes all the life. And see, the garden was representative of this place here. Eden is representative of this place here. This is called the outer court. This is where the rest of humanity lives. That's where God drives man to out of the garden. And it isn't until Moses comes along that God says, I'm going to show you a way to come back into this. I'm going to show you how you get back into this. You can't get back into my presence without blood and without the word. That's how you get back into my presence. And this tabernacle becomes the, the temple under Solomon. Solomon builds this huge, huge structure, but basically the measurements are the same. This is a cube, not only on, on the, 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 the outer edges, but also in height. It's as high as it is wide as it is deep. It's, it's a fairly good-sized cube, and it's the only cube you see in the Bible. Everything else is, is shaped some other way. The only other place you ever see this if you like this stuff, this is free, no charge for this, is in the book of Revelation where the city of Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem comes down. And it's what? It's as wide as it is deep as it is high. And this is where God dwells. You with me? Still there? This is the big story here. We're going we're gonna to close on time too. So what, what do we see? We see that... <clears throat> God ha has given us a place to get in. If you li I love the book of Hebrews because it covers all this stuff. It tells you all, all about what's going on here. <clears throat> so the predicament is that we're stuck like that cow is on that fence. We can't get off, but God now shows us this. And the promise comes all the way from Genesis and is echoed through the prophets. They're all talking about this day when things are going to change forever. Right? This is going to happen somewhere. And that's why the New Testament writers, they point to that this promise is fulfilled in Jesus. He's the one who brings us into restoration. And what does John say about him? He says, the Word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us, or more specifically, tabernacled among us. So that Jesus, now, he, this, that picture we had of that tabernacle becomes a picture of Jesus. He's the one now who's going to fulfill all of these things by shedding his blood. He's the word himself, and he's going to take us into the presence of God. Yeah? This is exciting. I think this is very exciting. This is the picture that we get from the whole... Now, listen, folks. This is the whole Bible. This is what the Bible is all about. So in, in 30 A.D. or somewhere around there, Jesus appears and begins to preach the kingdom of God. Uh, John quotes him as saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, what? Comes to the Father but by me. 
I'm the way into that place. I'm the reconciliation, I'm the restoration, I'm the atonement for all the sins that you commit that you no longer have to be stuck on that fence in that predicament. Now you can find a way back into the presence of God, which is what God intended back in the garden when he created man and placed him in the garden. That was the place where God wanted fellowship. And this is the point that of our Christian experience is that God wants to fellowship with us. He wants relationship with you. He wants you to come into his presence and drink of him, eat of him, know him, relate to him. That's really what it's all about. When we gather together on Sunday morning to worship, that what we're doing is we're coming into the presence of God. It's not... It's not something that we could say is geographical, but it's spiritual. We come in and we do that, and here is our hope that one day we will stand before him. See, because Jesus has become our priest who takes us into the presence of God. And the great thing about this story is that it doesn't end there. Because in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, the Apostle John writes this, He has made us to be a kingdom, priests, priests to our God and Father, to Him be glory forever. So what does that mean? If Jesus is the high priest that takes us into the presence of God, what does that mean for us if He's made us priests? Our job is to serve the tabernacle is to bring people into that holy place. Our job, we we call it evangelism. The New Testament writers saw it very clearly that God has made us all priests to our God and Father, a kingdom and priests. This is not for some future age. This is what our occupation is today, what it should be today. So we have these things going on, and now we have a priesthood and a kingdom of priests. And this is the part where we, we... we recognize that, that this is what we do with evangelism. Our job is, we, we should be, the way that we should be serving the Lord today is, is not just praying for people or being kind to people or showing mercy to people, but God's heart, what he demonstrated in Jesus Christ, is that he wants to bring everyone that is willing to come into his presence and into relationship with him. Because that's the thing that really feeds my heart and feeds my soul and gives me the the strength to go on and be all that God wants me to be, just to be a better priest. What we do with apologetics is something that has happened in our culture, all I believe of Western culture and maybe even in in the rest of the world, is that it's become so secularized and that the good news is just not good news to everybody anymore. That we understand that the good news is only good to people who are looking for salvation, but the people who are not have to be convinced that this is the only way to live your life. That we have the answer that will, would solve a multitude of problems on the earth if people would come back into relationship with Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean we're perfect. I don't believe we'll ever be perfect until Jesus comes or we go to be with him. That's where perfection begins. But we we have the life of God and the life of Christ in us to share with people and, and to minister to people. That's what our priesthood is today. So the big story is that God made it, we broke it, and Jesus fixed it. But now you're part of the fixing. 
See, God made it. What did he make? He just didn't make this vast, immense, wonderful universe and our solar system and all these beautiful things. But he, the last thing God created was what? Or should I say the last thing God created was who? Was humanity. Was people. Was us. He was done creating now because this was his purpose. This was his end game. All this other stuff is just so that we could be here and have relationship with him in a time-space dimension. You see, so we become that part of Jesus that fixes it today. And just the way that we fix it, the only part that we can do is we can talk about the blood of Jesus. We can talk about the forgiveness of sin and the power of the word to wash you. Because we want people to come back into the place where God can fellowship with them, where they can fellowship with God. That, my friends, is the big story. That's the thing that we live for. And you can find it echoed through the whole Bible. This is what God is after. There's so many things you can get caught up in and think that this is what it's about or that's what it's about. If Jesus isn't the center of it, if you don't understand that he is the purpose of it all, it doesn't work. It doesn't fit from beginning to end. The Bible isn't this chopped up set of books that are all disparate and disconnected. It's one story through 66 books. It's one story that just continues all the way through till we realize when we come to the book of Revelation, first of all, it's not revelations, right? It's revelation, and it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of beasts and monsters and dragons and all kinds of crazy things. It's the revelation of who Jesus is because it begins there and it goes all the way to the end. I have one more verse for you. First <clears throat> chapter 21 of Revelation, here it is. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, what? Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That is the end story. That's what God's after. And that's what we should be looking for and living for and moving toward this with our lives. So if you learn anything this morning, you'll, you'll remember God made it, we broke it, Jesus fixes it. What's our role today? He has made you, me included, but he's made you a kingdom, priests to our God and Father. That's just not some nice religious statement. That's a functional description of what God wants from us, right? As priests, our job, our primary job is to serve in the tabernacle. We bring people into the presence of God. We go out and evangelize. We go out and share that we know the answer to everyone's problems. That, you, you know, they can be out of money. They could have a sickness. They could be everything there is. But the answer doesn't lie just in healing or getting rich. The answer lies in meeting God. And this, is, this is, should be the trajectory of our lives, that we are living that life to bring people back to God. That's the big story. Amen?
I'm only asking this, Ray, because it might help other people who are here for the first time in our church. When you say it's all about the blood of the, the Lord, that could be, whoa, you know, the blood. So can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. Um, um, it's great. I'm sorry if I, if I just anticipated or, or thought everybody would understand. The, the, the scripture tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's, that's straight at it. So in the Old Testament they would shed the blood of an animal and looking forward through that, whether they knew it or not, that that blood in the Old Testament would cover their sin, that God would not see their sin because it was covered by blood. In the New Testament, we see Jesus dies for us and his shed blood doesn't just cover our sin, but makes us clean, washes us of our sin, makes us as if we have never sinned. That's really what justification is. Justification is that God makes us as if we have never sinned. And your, your sin is forgiven not only from yesterday, but today and tomorrow when you receive Jesus Christ as the one who shed blood for you. And so without that blood, you don't come into relationship. It, you can't do enough good deeds to earn God's favor. You're like that cow stuck on that fence. Just get that picture in your mind. It helps me every time I think about it. You just, you can't get off there. You can't get any closer to God. You're stuck until Jesus comes and sheds blood for us. Or we receive him today because we look back to the cross. And we realize that that blood unites us with him. And he becomes our savior by dying for us, dying as us, and then being raised from the dead. We're still in him. We've received new life, and we can change now. We're out of that predicament. Our lives are different. Check, check. Any other questions? I'm going to anticipate one other one, if you don't mind, Ray, on no. behalf of some people, because for some reason today they're a bit shy. <laughs> Maybe it's the New York accent, you know, or uh, New Jersey accent, should I say. Um, Somebody would say, and you guys will probably hear this, and if you have, can I see your hand? Has anybody ever said to you, well, hang on, why am I on the hook for Adam's sin? If Adam committed a sin, and how come I, yeah, okay, a few people have had that. Why am I on the hook for Adam's sin originally? I mean, I mean yeah, so that's a question which gets asked by quite a few people. Yeah. Even if you're not on the hook for Adam's sin, you're on the hook for your own sin. Yeah. I mean, I think that the fall of Adam gives us what we call a sinful nature in the sense we have a propensity to sin. But what we're guilty of is our sin. We're guilty of, of violating all of God's law. If you break one thing, you know, anybody here never lied? So we're all guilty, right? Anybody here never stole anything? Anybody here never had a bad thought about somebody? So we're all sinners. And we're all deserving of what? Of death. Not only, not only physical death, but eternal separation from God. That's what, we're, that's what we're guilty of, is eternal separation from God. 
And we're like that cow stuck on a fence. We, we just can't get out of that. There's nothing you can do to eradicate those sins. Some religions think, well, if you do enough good, you'll outweigh the bad. No, you're still responsible for that. Good deeds don't wash away bad deeds. They just make you, you do, just do some good things. But there's an accounting somewhere for our sin that God sees until you are washed in the blood of Jesus until you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior and believe that God sent him to die for us in our place and also to die as us. Not only did Jesus die for me, I died when he died. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. So we understand that my sin is forgiven. My conscience becomes clean when I know that my sins are paid for. My conscience, now I am no longer under guilt. That's the one thing psychologists cannot deal with when they deal with people. They don't know what to do to get people to stop feeling guilty. Because it's something that isn't physical, it isn't emotional, it's not even mental, it's spiritual. They know that they have a separation from God because of it. And that's what the guilt is. Until you get that eternal answer, which is the blood of Jesus. That relieves you of your guilt. And now you're free. Now all of a sudden you feel like a free person. You can remember your sins, but you don't feel the... You don't feel the, 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 the effects of your sins anymore. I can remember being a sinner, but I'm a new person. I'm a new creation in Christ today because I've been born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Yeah. I just wanted to add to what Ray has said. As many as you know, I'm a registered nurse. I work at a um, clinic that actually many of you come along to. I, a gentleman walked in this very week and I was just astounded what he told me. He came in and, because people can just walk in, you don't have to have a doctor's uh, appointment. He was in his 50s and he said to me, I want to harm myself. I want it in my life. I have a suicide kit at home and I am thinking of taking my life. So as nurses, we sit there and we listen and I, and I just listened, well, just tell me about that. He said to me, he said to me, my business has gone south. I'm in a lot of debt. I feel so bad about myself. I went to town the other week. I got drunk, slept with prostitutes, and I've, I just was just astounded. And he was telling me all these things about his life, how guilty he felt. He was in essence saying, I don't know what to do with my guilt. I couldn't exactly tell him what I thought he should do with it because that wasn't my place at the time. But it just struck me, here's a man thinking, I've, I've wrecked my life, I've disappointed my partner, I've been not true to my own values. But there's hope. You know, we all, all I could say to him, I'm sorry, but we're all flawed. I've botched up, you've botched up, you know. I just tried to identify with him. But I thought of the precious gospel, you know, we look around our world, we look around our globe, you know, it's the sin in us that wrecks communities, it wrecks marriages, it wrecks countries, just look at the country of South Sudan, it's the president, the vice president, 
their struggle for power to be top dog. It's ripping the nation apart. It's our sin that wrecks our own lives, right? But as I sat there and listened to him, I'm glad that he walked away. At least I could affirm, I'm sorry, mate, but, you know, we're all flawed. It's just not you. (laughs) But I thought of our precious gospel. Somebody, God says, yeah, we do need to pay because it's so gross. Our sin is so gross before him, we do need to pay for it, and that's why Jesus came. It's a story, I feel, that, like Ray says, that can change everything. It can change our marriages. So I just wanted to share that with you, possibly, so we can all understand a bit more. Why we talk about the blood, somebody, my goodness, has got to pay, and it was Jesus that paid. Amen. Great.